listening to Cleaning the Case, a broadcast devoted to peeling back the culture and traditions associated with today's Christian faith through a widow, bride, and marriage theological perspective of Scripture. Welcome. My name is Andy Mendonza, and I will be your host. title of this episode is Calling All Citizens. Uh, Now, I'm not calling all citizens in terms of American citizens or European citizens or African citizens, but citizens of heaven. In Philippians 3.20 tells us that our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. We also know from Ephesians chapter 2, starting with verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace we have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And finally, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What fellowship can light have with darkness? Don't be yoked together with unbelievers. It has been clearly established based on Paul's words that we, once we are in Christ, once we have accepted Jesus' proposal of marriage, once we are his bride, our citizenship is in heaven. And we are already seated with him in the heavenly realm. And while we are here, we are not to be unequally yoked. Paul goes on to say uh, in Ephesians, uh, after the 19th verse of the, the second chapter where he says we are fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, um, that we're no longer foreigners or strangers uh, to God, but we are foreigners and strangers to the world once we are in Christ. And, and verse 20 says that our faith is now built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. 
Paul, again, uh, goes on to say in Ephesians 6, uh, beginning with verse 19, he says, Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. If, if our citizenship is now in heaven, once we are betrothed to Jesus, if we are already seated in a heavenly realm with Jesus, as his betrothed, as co-heirs with Christ, adopted into our heavenly Father's family, uh, we are now uh, fully his children, that we, like Paul, uh, our ambassadors in chains while we remain on this earth. Uh, the, the foundation that we are to build on is, is that foundation that has been laid by the apostles and the prophets with Jesus being the chief cornerstone. Is that really, when we look around us today, is that really what we see? Is there really even any evidence of that? What we see, what we call the church today, whether it's in America or in other parts of the world, uh, but since I'm an American, uh, that's what I am most familiar with. That, that's what I see on a day-to-day -day basis. That's what I hear about on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, whether it's uh, in the news, um, from friends and family, strangers, uh, church members. Um, what is it that we, we really see and hear and have al allowed ourselves to become part of? Is, is it, does it really look like kingdom citizenship citizenship in heaven does it it are we really reflecting the fact that we're strangers in this life in this world while we remain does it really reflect being ambassadors in chains is it a reflection of what it looks like to not be unevenly yoked? What is the kingdom of God supposed to look like? What are we as kingdom heavenly citizens supposed to look like? Is there a clear distinction in our own minds, in our own churches, between citizenship in heaven and citizenship here on earth, whether it's American citizenship, uh, citizenship in Europe, uh, Asia, Africa. Uh, does that ultimately, those citizenships, those earthly citizenships, do they 
end up taking priority over our heavenly citizenship? Do we place our what we believe about our relationship to Jesus and knowing that we are not to be unequally yoked? Uh, do, do we at the same time place our uh, earthly citizenships and the, the constitutions of the nations that we are a part of, do, do we give them equal status uh, as, as Scripture and, and what we know to be true based on Scripture for who we are in Christ, the way that, that God looks at us, what he has done for us, when it is most convenient for us, when, when it will be most favorable for us with, for our own personal circumstances, uh, our own lifestyles, our own protections, those things that make us afraid, do we then give in to those protections that we claim are guaranteed by our own constitutions to, to protect us? Because everything that Scripture says kind of runs counter to that. And so I, I, I want to look at Jesus' own life. Uh, in this regard. Uh, I, I want to look at the idea of kingdom citizenship and, and what our job description is there a job description presented to us in scripture even coming from Jesus' own words to us well to his disciples and then ultimately to us do we have, if I said you know, what Give me a Christian job description. What would you point to? What, what references would you give to me or to someone else? I mean, when, when you accepted Jesus, when you accepted his proposal of marriage, were, were you handed a job description? Or were you handed a set of um, criteria for what it looks like to be obedient to a, a system that's supposed to mirror Jesus. As long as I am obedient to this system that is being presented to me, and, and you know, that revolves around uh, the, the churches we become a part of. That, that becomes, in effect, our job description uh, obedience to that that system, and it's not that everything in that is wrong. Uh, we're we're called to be not to to be islands, but but to be part of community, to stand together, to support each other, to to shoulder one another's burdens. Uh, but but that's that's not really uh, a job description. That that really in a in a sense becomes a a system of being obedient to a system of works what constitutes 
uh, works. Um, so I, I want to look at what I believe is the job description that Jesus gives to us. His own words uh, first given to his disciples. And of course, uh, they model this job description for us. And if we believe that our faith is based on uh, the foundation of the the apostles and the prophets, uh, Jesus being the chief cornerstone, then then that becomes our job description as well. Uh, have you ever thought about that? I mean, I, I know that sounds kind of crazy, but um, looking today at the lines that have become so blurred be, between nationalism, if you will, or... Um, citizenship in our individual nations. And, and, and for me, uh, being an American, I, I am looking at um, the ways that, that we, as God's people, uh, Christians, the church, uh, have so meshed and blurred the lines uh, be, between our uh, our, our nationalities, our, 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 our statehood, um, you know, being an American and w what it means to be a citizen of heaven. Uh, sh should we be involved in politics? Should Christians be involved in politics? Uh, are, are there areas that, that we should not get involved in? Well, any area where we become unevenly yoked, according to that passage uh, that I read in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, that says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? And we have to go back and look at Jesus' life. Back uh, in the very first episode um, that I did that, that talks about the effects of deception and where deception comes from, and it, in 2 Corinthians 11, uh, 1 through 4, where it talks about, um, Paul says he's, he has betrothed us to one husband, to Christ Jesus, that he desires that we be pure as a virgin, but he fears that just like Eve was deceived by the serpent, that our own minds might be led astray from our pure and sincere devotion to Christ. And he's talking about the church, both male and female, that the vulnerability of the church for both men and women is that of Eve for being deceived. And he follows up in verse 4 and he says, you know, but if somebody comes along and teaches a, a different gospel message or a different Jesus or a different spirit than the one that you received, it says, he says, you accept it easily enough. And where, where do those messages, they come from the inside. Deception does not come to us from the outside. It comes to us through our leaders. 
as hard as that is to accept, that is where deception will come to us through. Those that we have given our stamp of approval for their orthodoxy, uh, for their credibility, uh, because they, they preach correctly the gospel of salvation through Jesus, but they don't model the life of Jesus. We can have the right Jesus of salvation and the completely wrong Jesus for living it out. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, for we accept it easily enough. And today, the most credible Christian leaders, many of the most credible Christian leaders in our land uh, have, have led us headlong into the, the political realm. Now, this, I know a lot of people probably going to stop listening to this now. This is not a political talk. This is a scriptural talk about Jesus and our relationship with Jesus and our citizenship in heaven now, which means we are strangers on this earth. We're already seated with Jesus in a heavenly realm, and we are not to be unequally yoked. We cannot, no matter how pure we think our motives are, no matter how much we convince ourselves that God has called us into office, we cannot, by virtue of entering into that realm, we yoke ourselves with unbelievers, with unrighteousness, with Darkness is an impossibility to remain true to our pure devotion to Christ when we enter into that realm. And anyone who tells you otherwise doesn't know the Jesus before he offered up his life. They have forgotten what Jesus looks like. They've forgotten what he looks like. They have forgotten that Jesus never talks about politics. He never talks about the ruling Roman authorities in government. Uh, Palestine was, occupied, was an occupied land, occupied by the Romans, and the Jews were being persecuted on a daily basis by the Romans. And you never hear Jesus utter a single word about this. And, and this, you know, this, this was part of the tension for Jesus not being recognized as the Messiah because the belief was that the Messiah was going to be like King David, a warrior king who would lead the Jews out from under Roman rule and occupation. That isn't 
who Jesus was because that's not what Jesus came to do. He, he didn't come to just do a one-time deliverance. Uh, he came to do an all-time deliverance. The second exodus, with, if you will, that, that he gives us the way not to leave Egypt, but to, to leave our fallen world and our fallen lives uh, where we, we already have a place reserved in heaven and, and that he is preparing a place for us right now. Uh, that's what he said. I've, I've gone to prepare a place for you and I'm going to come back for you. And so in the meantime, the reason I titled uh, this episode, Calling All Citizens, is because there are citizens of heaven all across this planet. There are citizens of heaven in each of our neighborhoods, in each of our cities, in each of our countries, and our allegiance is first to Christ and in that allegiance to Christ, our allegiance then is to all other citizens of heaven on this earth at the same time that we are here. We are not separated by physical borders and boundaries. We cannot be culpable for causing harm to any other heavenly citizens because we place ourselves, our wants, our fears drive us to protect ourselves first and foremost. We can't do that as citizens of heaven. We have to regard all citizens of heaven equally. Jesus came to serve and not be served. He says that we are to consider others more highly than we do ourselves because that's what he did for us. That's what he modeled for us. Jesus, who was both God and man, came down because his father sent him to us and he came to serve and not be served. And in order to do that, he had to think of us as highly as he did himself, if not more highly than he did himself. But we have entered a time, in fact, it has always been a struggle for us as Christians to put others, all others, especially all other believers before ourselves. We have to put the needs of others ahead of our own wants. We cannot let fear overtake us. Fear is the opposite of love, not hate. There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out all fear because fear has to do with punishment. We fear something bad is going to happen to us, and so we do whatever it is, even enter into being willing to yoke ourselves with those who are not citizens of heaven in order to 
falsely believe that they can protect us. No one can protect us except for God. Everything is essentially a facade. It can disappear in less than the twinkling of an eye. Our lives can be so dramatically changed, can fall out from under us at a moment's notice. It is only God's grace that holds anything together, that holds us upright on a day-to-day basis. We might think it's our own abilities and our own strength that is doing this, but, but it's not. It's God and his, his mercy and his grace, and he says he even rains his mercies down on believers, unrighteous and righteous alike, but that doesn't mean that we are to yoke ourselves with them. You know, I don't know whether you've ever thought about this, but when the high priests uh, and the other religious leaders found Jesus guilty and believed that his guilt warranted execution, they didn't have the authority to execute him. And so what did they do? They did something that they would never consider doing otherwise, but they were unwilling to wait on God to seek God for His will to be done. They took things into their own hands and they yoked themselves with the civil and political authorities. They went to Pontius Pilate and they asked him to rule Jesus guilty and to execute him. And Pilate didn't want to do it, so he sent him to Herod, the governor. Herod, who who was actually raised as a Jew and is in this political position, uh, one of a lot of power and authority. Uh, And he, he sends him back to Pilate, and apparently uh, did not judge him to be guilty. He sends him back to Pilate. Pilate says, I don't, there's no guilt here. And they insist, the, the, the Jewish leaders insist that Jesus be executed. That's what happens when We, even today, yoke ourselves with the civil and political authorities. We justify it because we believe that that somehow we've convinced ourselves that, that this is, that a nation can be Christian uh, and that we need to implement, uh, in effect, Christian rule of law over our land uh, to, to all of its citizenship, even though all of the citizenship of any country uh, is not made up of all believers. We, when we do this, 
when we cannot trust in the Lord for Him to protect us, to watch over us, to provide for us, then we begin to take things into our own hands and we justify them. And in order to justify them, we have to mix, we have to blend together the Old Testament, the, 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 the covenant under the law with the covenant under grace the new covenant under grace even though that other covenant not the promise but but the covenant and the way it was carried out uh, we have to blend those two together i want to quote uh, from galatians 3 chapter 3 verse 17 uh these could be my words. What I mean by this, that Paul actually says, what I mean by this, the law introduced 430 years after the promise was made to Abraham to that his seed, meaning Christ, uh, he would come through Abraham's descendants. He would be born through one of Abraham's descendants. But he says, the law, which was introduced 430 years after this promise, this covenant was made with Abraham, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. Uh, but if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God, in His grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. In effect, it really was a promise of grace, a covenant of grace. Uh, but it says, why then was the law given at all? Why, why was it introduced 430 years later? This is what it says in verse 19. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come, which is Jesus. The law was given through angels in, and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would have certainly come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. 
For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile anymore, neither slave nor free anymore, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. We are under a covenant of grace. Now, once we are betrothed to Jesus, our citizenship is secured in heaven. We are citizens of heaven, already seated with Jesus in a heavenly realm. And like Paul, we are now ambassadors in chains. We are strangers to this life and to this world and to our own earthly citizenships. And yet, because of fear, our fear has become so great as God's people that it has, that love has, it has created a vacuum, a place where love and compassion and mercy no longer exist. We don't realize, you know, Einstein's the theory of relativity. For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. Think about this. I, I'm going to throw, you know, politics out here again. Um, everybody has a side. We choose sides. You know, there are Christians on one side and there are Christians on the other side. And they both look at each other with disdain and even doubt whether those Christians on the other side are really Christians. How could you be a Christian if you're on that side and you believe those things? And likewise, how could you be a Christian if, if you're on the other side and you uh, believe those things? You know, we cause harm to each other through these avenues. You know, we vote and we say, well, we know more correctly than everyone else who doesn't agree with us. We are more scripturally correct. We, we are more orthodox in our Christian faith, never realizing that, that our actions, that, that our firm convictions have equal and opposite reactions. It causes harm to other believers. We, it gives rise to hatred. It gives rise to jealousy and fear and all kinds of other things that, that would tempt us when we become afraid. There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out all fear. You know, we, we can't say that we love our neighbors as ourselves when we take actions that ultimately cause them harm, cause other believers harm. We can't say that and when we do those things it is in effect denying 
Jesus. We may confess Jesus with our lips, but our actions speak otherwise. When the the religious leaders, when the high priest took Jesus to Pontius Pilate in order for him to, to find him guilty, to judge him guilty and have him executed, that was a complete denial of God. Even though they felt justified, you know, Jesus accused them of of justifying their actions. We should not have to justify our actions if we are being led by Jesus. It it also said Jesus also said that that uh, it only takes a little bit of yeast to leaven the whole batch. You know, who whatever that leaven is, whoever is over us, who has authority over us, whether it is you know, our church leaders are ultimately now our political leaders. Um, that leaven, there, there is power uh, there. There is authority that, that comes through that little bit of yeast. And it just, and when it is filled with deception... When that yeast is filled with deception, there is a spiritual dynamic that overtakes us, that blinds us, that deafens us to what is really the truth. Listen to what Jesus says to his disciples in Luke chapter 12. Uh, this is really this is really a job description for us in fact i I wonder if you know about myself when 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 I accepted Jesus when I accepted his proposal of marriage i I wonder if this job description had been handed to me i I wonder how I would have reacted to this uh, going forward. Especially when, um, you know, th- this job description is, is really never talked about. It, it's certainly not modeled for us. It, it's, a, it's a hard thing to model. It's a hard thing for us to, to really accept because it is the complete opposite of the way that we are led as citizens of heaven, uh, as by our churches, by our Christian leaders, uh, starting with verse 22. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? 
since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wildflowers grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink don't worry about it. For the pagan world, for the pagan world runs after all such things, and your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning, like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. I don't know whether you've ever thought about this as as a job description, um, but it it is um, really just cuts right through everything. Um, I I know in some translations it 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 says don't be like Gentiles. I I know in the NIV it says pagans, but um, pagans were, were Gentiles. Uh, and I'm a Gentile. I don't have a drop of, of Jewish blood in me. I, I'm a Gentile. So this, what Jesus uh, is saying here, who he's talking about uh, trying to help his disciples to understand um, you know, that that's me. Don't be like a Gentile. Uh because the Gentiles didn't have faith in the one true God at that time. They were excluded from the faith uh, because God had, had through Abra beginning with Abraham, had, had chosen Abraham because of his righteousness and because of God's grace, he made a covenant, uh, a promise to Abraham that um, the seed, which is the the same seed that God makes this promise to Eve when she is taken out of the Garden of Eden, uh, God says to her in chapter 3, verse 15, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and hers. He will crush your head and you, and you will strike his heel. That seed that God's talking about uh, there in Genesis 3.15 is, is the same seed that, that God is talking about in Genesis 17.7. God says, And I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant 
to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. Now, some translations um, translate the word seed in both this passage and the Genesis 3.15 passage. Um, in Genesis 3.15, it says, some translations say offspring. And in uh, Genesis 17.7, 7, uh, some translations say descendants. doesn't use the word seed. Uh, but descendants is, is plural, and the seed is singular. I don't know why it's translated as uh, descendants plural or as offspring uh, in Genesis 3.15 talking to Eve because in Galatians 3.16, Paul says, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, singular. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. So this promise, uh, beginning with, with what God tells Eve, and then now because of God's grace and because of Abraham's righteousness, God makes this covenant, this, this promise to send uh, his seed. He, he at that same time is choosing Abraham and his descendants to, for this seed to come through and be born. But because of uh, Israel's transgressions, uh, that un- until the seed could come, and it was purely because of their transgressions. Uh, the law was given. This and this system, this this high priest system uh, that included the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, uh, the the holy of holies, the place where the Ark of the Covenant was kept and God met with the high priest. Um, In effect, um, a a theocracy was established, but it was only meant to be a shadow and copy of what is in heaven until the promise could be fulfilled. Uh, You know, Jesus said he didn't come to do away with the law. He, He came to fulfill it. Uh, but the law was given because of transgressions. It, it was given 430 years after God made his promise, uh, his covenant with Abraham. Uh, a theocracy is a system of government in which priests rule in the name of God or a God. Uh, the commonwealth of Israel from the time of Moses until the election of Saul as king, uh, Israel was was a theocracy. But as you know, Israel demanded a king. God said, you don't need a king. But they demanded a king. And so Saul became a, their king. They were not satisfied with in effect, being citizens of heaven only. They were not satisfied with being God's chosen people to reveal him to all of the world. Uh, 
and he is ultimately revealed when the promise is fulfilled and Jesus is born. He was born, he lived, he ministered for three years. He, he reveals his heavenly father. Everything he did, he pointed out that he was not here to fulfill his own will. He was here to fulfill his father's will. To fulfill the promise made to Eve, to fulfill the promise, his covenant with Abraham, and he fulfilled it. He offered up his life, and he defeated death, and he was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven. And when we accept his proposal of marriage, again, we are already seated in a heavenly realm with him. Our citizenship in heaven is completely established. Yet, today, our Christian mantra, so to speak, has become Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. I, I, I don't even know how many times I've, I've heard this quoted. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. You know, there, there's a couple of things. You know, one, it's almost if we, we recite this, if we re quote this passage enough times, it's just going to happen. And it never happens. Never see any difference. Uh, no matter how many times this, this is prayed uh, or quoted. You know, just like salvation. You know, if, if when we accepted Jesus... When we got off of our faces after surrendering our lives to him, did we go down the same path we were on before that happened? Were our actions, were, were, our, was our, were our lives the same? Were we still on a path of destruction? Or did the Holy Spirit seal us as scripture says that, that we are sealed in the Holy Spirit that our citizenships became that for heaven where we're seated with Jesus in a heavenly realm that we were supposed to become like Paul ambassadors in chains that our lives were to reflect what Jesus said to uh, his disciples, that we are not to worry about our lives, what we will eat, or our bodies, what we will wear, but we are to seek the kingdom of God first and foremost. That each of us are considered to be temples unto the Lord because our bodies house the Holy Spirit. Where Two or more are gathered. God is in our midst. And yet we, we quote this passage in Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. Uh, 
But nothing changes when we get off of our faces. When we cry out to God and we say, we're humbling ourselves, God. We are turning from our wicked ways. Heal our land. God has already healed us. By his stripes we are healed because death has been defeated in us through Jesus. This passage was for Israel. This passage was given, this instruction was given to Israel because of their transgressions. Once again, uh, remember their transgressions was the reason that the law was given in the first place, that the high priestly system was put into place, that that the the tabernacle, which then became the temple and, and the Ark of the Covenant and that entire system that was meant to just be a shadow and copy of what things were like in the heavenly realm until Jesus came. You know, I heard in the last presidential election a well-respected national Christian leader he presented two visions for America, and it was a really brilliant strategy for telling Christians who to vote for without actually naming a specific political party uh, and candidate, and it worked. Uh, and the reason it was done this way, because the IRS prohibits churches as well as uh, Christian faith-based nonprofits, 501c3 organizations, to endorse political candidates or to uh, address politics uh, in a church setting or, or ministry setting. So many Christians um, were able to then justify casting their vote, uh, not for a particular candidate, but, but for a vision that a particular candidate was seen as being able to carry out. You know, that, that was all filled with so much, so much deception. Because our vision is the kingdom of God. Our mission is the kingdom of God. Our mission is not a political system. Our mission is not for a specific nation or government or people. It is for all God's citizens in heaven, for all those who are already seated in a heavenly realm. That is the kingdom God of God. That is the church. That is Christ's bride. Why is no one saying, what is your vision for the church? What is God's vision for the church? What does he want his church, his bride, to look like? How could we possibly think that by yoking ourselves with unbelievers, with the unrighteous, with those that, that we say we consider them to be in darkness, and yet we yoke ourselves with them in order to bring about the kingdom of God? Really? Seriously? How have our Christian leaders 
not just in America, but around the world, how have they become so deceived that they now have become serpents and vipers and are being used as instruments to deceive all of us? Jesus said, will I even find faith on earth when I return? Which is actually found in Luke chapter 18, uh, verse 7 and 8. And will God not bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him night and day? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? That's a terrible, horrible thought, horrible indictment. Why would that question even be asked, though, if it were not possible, if it could not be a reality? He's not talking about no one believing that he is the Messiah, having accepted the Messiah. Faith is the working out, the daily working out of our faith through acts that involve a demonstration of loving, for loving God with our heart, mind, and soul, and loving our neighbors as ourselves. The evidence of our confessed faith is to live it out based on Jesus' own life as well as his disciples, which must fulfill his job description for us, to seek his kingdom first, to set aside all of our wants all of our fears, all that anxiety and worry in order to be able to serve others and not be served. But instead, we spend most of our lives striving to have enough so that we can be served we can have enough to be served and not serve others. And that, that includes our being protected. Only we don't want protection for everybody who is a kingdom citizen. We only want it for those who are most like us, our own within our own realms of, of influence, our spheres of influence. And, of course, you know, those who have the most, those who, who have the most money, those who have the most power and influence because of that money, because of that wealth, we then begin to see the world around us not as the in terms of the kingdom of God and what, what Jesus has said about not worrying about our lives, what we will eat and what we will wear, 
to sell our possessions and give to the poor to make certain that no other kingdom citizens are doing without or suffering because we are withholding with what God has given to us, entrusted to us in order to be able to help provide for others. You remember, Scripture says, to those who have been given much, much is expected. If you have privilege, it's only because God has great expectations for you to be generous with your heart, mind, and soul, with all of your word and deed actions to realize that anything we have comes from God and he's only given it to us not to put it under a rock and keep it for ourselves. He's given it to us so that we can distribute it. Do, distribute our own lives on behalf of others. There is no mandate in Scripture, in the New Testament, with Jesus' words or any words following the gospel of counts, especially by the Apostle Paul, for establishing a theocracy for any nation on earth that has risen and fallen since the time of Christ's resurrection and ascension into heaven that is meant to be like Israel was for the purpose of fulfilling God's promise to Eve and then Abraham and his descendants which became Israel in order God chose Abraham and his descendants in order to bring the seed into being, which is Jesus. We believe is Jesus. But his intention, according to his word, that even then when he made this promise to Abraham, that once the seed was born, once Jesus came, once Jesus had offered up his life, ascended into heaven, that the doors would be open wide to include everyone. Everyone would have the opportunity, Jew and Gentile alike, male and female alike. There would no longer be a distinction between Jew and Gentile. Everyone, according to Ephesians, the opportunity to, to accept Jesus, to embrace Jesus, to accept his proposal of marriage, to become betrothed to him, was open. And so there is no need for any specific country to be identified with 
the promise because the promise has already been fulfilled. And now we are waiting for the wedding feast, for the marriage feast at the end of this age. But we have so confused, blurred the lines between nationhood and bridehood, churchhood, being the church, being the bride. There is no nation on earth that is also the church, the bride, because the bride and the church are people. They're not institutions. The church is not in the church that that the bride that we are betrothed to are people, not an institution, not a nation. We stand wholly separate. We are strangers in this life and in this world and in the nations where God has planted us that he has put us. Our vision is for the kingdom of God. It is not for a nation that by its very nature is already corrupt and impure and filled with darkness and unrighteousness. And we are not to yoke ourselves with unrighteousness, with unbelievers, with darkness. But we are to love those who don't believe as we believe. We are to serve those who don't believe, who are unbelievers. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, beginning with uh, verse 38, You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, I can tell you, if, if you want to know how to spot someone who still is trying to live out a hybrid Christian faith the, the, that has merged the uh, covenant of grace with the law, they will focus on the Ten Commandments and abiding by the Ten Commandments. Now, I know that we have to obey God's commands. I know that uh, we are called to 
obey the law in the lands where we live, uh, that we are not to be rebellious, but we are not under the law. Jesus said he didn't come to abolish the law, but, but to fulfill it. And that the law, that all of the commands can be summed up uh, as the two greatest commands for loving God with our heart, mind, and soul, and loving our neighbors as ourselves. If our lives, if that becomes our standard for worship, that, that worship has to fulfill what it means to love God with our hearts, minds, and souls, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. In other words, giving thanks to God in all things in Christ Jesus' name, as well as those, those acts of mercy and, and compassion when we are putting others, their needs before our wants, um, what it means to, to love our neighbors as ourselves. And who is our neighbor? Our neighbor is everyone, but especially those that, that God has placed in our path. And sometimes that path means that we have to go to the places where they are. Like Jesus, when he went had to go to Samaria on his way to Galilee, and, and God had an appointment for him at Jacob's well with the Samaritan woman. Or the parable of the Good Samaritan with, with the victim uh, lying uh, bloodied and beaten and half dead, stripped and robbed uh, on the Jericho Road. It doesn't mean that, that we can sit in our sanctuaries that we have created for ourselves to protect ourselves to keep ourselves from harm because of the fears that we have for what lies outside of our sanctuaries the neighborhoods where we choose to live uh, some of us have have opportunities to choose to live places and to have things and to separate ourselves that, that many people in our societies don't. Even many people in, in our churches, people who are equally citizens of heaven, seen equally by God. But this is what Jesus says to us as citizens of heaven, in Matthew chapter 5, what it looks like to seek the kingdom of God first. Jesus, it, it, starting with verse 1, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds, loving your neighbor as yourself, in other words, and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, those who preach and teach this, they understand, especially those who don't just preach it and teach it, but they model this. They understand the covenant of grace. They understand what Jesus has done on our behalf. They understand what it means to be a citizen in heaven, of heaven, and seated in a heavenly realm with Jesus already. They understand that citizenship in heaven comes before citizenship in on earth in all matters in all things with all people they understand that we are no longer under the law because the law reveals to us our need for Jesus. Once we are in Jesus, we are set free. The law is death. The law is a curse. And everyone who breaks the law, the literal physical rule of law or God's moral law without redemption is cursed and will suffer death. So why is it that we want to yoke ourselves with those who only want to impose death on us and everyone else? Why is it that because we feel so powerless and we are filled with so much fear and dread of for what will happen if we lose control? that we have come to a place where we feel like we have no other choice but to yoke ourselves, as those religious leaders did when they yoked themselves with, with the civil and political authorities, with Pontius Pilate, in order to be able to carry out their will, not God's will, but their will for crucifying, for executing Jesus Pontius Pilate didn't even want to have anything to do with it. He washed his hands of it. But we he couldn't wash his hands. He could not 
remove the stains of Jesus's blood on his hands any more than those who crucified him could. I'm not talking about as a people, the Jews as a people, but those individuals. And we can't do it either. Every time we yoke ourselves with unbelievers, every time we yoke ourselves with the political and civil authorities in order to bring about the kingdom of God, all we do is bring about the kingdom of man and bring about our own destruction, our own desolation. I want to read what Jesus says in Matthew 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, I want you to think about this in terms of today and in terms of the leadership of the Christian leadership today, especially uh, our national Christian leadership and the direction it is trying to, has taken much of the church with it. He says, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries and phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah, the greatest among you will be your servant. Because that's what Jesus modeled himself. He came to serve and not be served. Verse 12, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore, you shall receive the greater damnation. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Woe to you blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? 
Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, which are justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I tell you, all this will come on this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The word desolate in verse 38 says, Look, your house is left to you desolate. That word one of the ways that, that it is used is bereft. You know, in, in the New Testament, the word for widow is, is bereft. Um, this is not the same word that's translated as the word widow, but it, it has the, the same implication uh, of a flock, that has been deserted by its shepherd, of a woman who has been neglected by her husband, uh, 
that her husband withholds himself from her. He, he's saying essentially what Jesus is saying here, your house has been left to you desolate. In verse 14 uh, in this chapter, Jesus says, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore, you shall receive the greater damnation. In the same way that they have devoured the widow's houses, the widows who are bereft of a husband, verse 38 says, look, your own house has now been left desolate. The shepherd has abandoned you, your flock. God is no longer abiding with you. Your husband is withholding himself from you. And it's, it's not just that they have devoured uh, the widow's houses. It is all of those other things that, that Jesus says in the seven woes here. And, and how can we not look at what is being said here, especially those of us who are under now under a covenant of grace, whose citizenship is now in heaven, who we are now seated in a heavenly realm with Jesus. How can what Jesus is saying here to, to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders, how can we not see that these same woes now apply to us? That we have essentially forgotten our first love. We have justified in our own minds because of our deception. Our leaders have become like the leaders that were in Israel that Jesus called vipers and snakes. Why? Because they not only had become deceived, they were deceiving everyone else. I want to end this episode uh, by sharing a dream that I had. Uh, it's in the early 2000s. Um, it is just as vivid in my mind today as, as the night that I woke up from it. And, and quite honestly, I woke up uh, from it with a start. I mean, I was just wide awake uh, at the end of the dream. And I, I tend to be hesitant to, to share things like this. Um, but I really believe uh, over time that, that God has uh, confirmed to me uh, in so many ways, based on scripture, uh, the significance of this dream, and that this dream was, in fact, uh, from God. I, I truly believe that, but, but that is something that uh, those listening to this will, will have to decide for, for themselves. And as Paul says, uh, confirm everything by two or three witnesses. And one of those witnesses absolutely has to be scripture you you have to to be able to to confirm this through scripture 
this this was a dream, and and I didn't understand it immediately. Um, it it was the dream was familiar, and and those in the dream uh, were familiar, but the setting uh, wasn't familiar. Um, it it was a church setting, but not like we would think of a a church typically. This church had a roof, uh, but it had no walls. It, there, there were six poles uh, supporting this roof, and the sides of the church were open. There were two rows of pews lining the inside of the church uh, underneath the roof, and there was a pulpit at the front uh, with, with a pastor standing at, at the pulpit, and uh, the pews were filled with people and everybody was looking forward and but there was one uh, young woman uh, who, who I recognized but I didn't know who she symbolized uh, right away who was standing was not sitting down she was facing the opposite direction from those sitting in the pew looking forward and she was off to one side standing um, kind of at the, the very outer edge uh, on the side of the church, the overhang of the church, but she was underneath uh, the roof uh, of this church. Now, behind the church was this great rock face, like like a sheer cliff rock face. I, I couldn't see the top of it, but but all I could see behind the church uh, was this this massive rock face, and the the church was pushed up, was built right next to it as as close as it it could position itself to this rock face and, and uh, you it was so close you couldn't walk in between this rock face and uh, the, the church structure um, now the 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 church the the building itself uh, the poles that that were supporting the roof were on sand. They just went right down and sat on top of this, the ground that was sand. There was no foundation at all uh, for this church. And all of a sudden, the roof collapsed. And everyone underneath, uh, I, I just had this uh, a new uh, had had died had been crushed underneath and this this young woman uh, who I knew uh, she was crushed underneath the weight of this this roof this church roof as well and it was so uh, stark so dramatic uh, so so uh, well, upsetting, I, I think is not even the right word to say. That, that That's when I woke up and I was wide awake and uh, it, it was just, it hit me in such a traumatic way. I, I didn't, I, I, th I thought this dream meant something entirely different than what I have come to realize uh, that this dream, what, what, what God was showing me in this dream this rock face, uh, which you probably already figured out, I, I knew, I knew represented Jesus. 
and in this church building that was uh, had no walls, just a roof over it, and it was being supported by six poles. And you know, I know six is the number of man. Uh, th this was a man-made structure, a man-made institution, but it had had positioned itself so close to Jesus, represented or symbolized by, by this rock face in, in the background, uh, so as no one could tell that it wasn't actually Jesus. But there was no foundation underneath this church. Ephesians 2.20 tells us that the church, Christ's bride, is to be built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. You know, that was not this church. And, and what, what I have come to realize is th this, this, this church represents the church at large today, that it has positioned itself so close to Jesus but but it's it's become a business model. Uh, it 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 has the right Jesus of salvation, but it has the completely wrong Jesus for living it out, because deception has so overtaken the church today, and it has no foundation. You know, it's like uh, what. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock, on Jesus but everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. And that's what God showed me in this dream, that this, this, this church... Uh, it's a man-made institution. It has become a very successful business model. But it does not have as its foundation, uh, any foundation, a foundation built on the apostles and the prophets with Jesus being the chief cornerstone. It's not there it's been built on shifting sand. And this, this young woman who I recognized, she represents the church that God desires, the bride that, that he desires for his son, 
that, that Paul says, I, I'm jealous of you with a godly jealousy. I have betrothed you to one husband, to Christ Jesus. But I fear that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent, so your minds may be led astray from your pure and sincere devotion to Jesus. But if someone comes along and teaches a different gospel or a different Jesus or a different spirit from the one that, that you received, you accept it easily enough because that's what happens with deception. Deception doesn't come waving a banner from the outside. Deception comes from the inside, from those that we have put our faith and trust in. And that's the problem, is we need to place our faith and trust in Jesus, not man. And so this 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 man-derived institution uh, that that the the roof uh, collapsed and crushed everyone underneath and it it crushed the bride the church the real church that that God desires that that's what I came away with over time studying scripture looking at the condition of the church today, looking at the ways that the church has become so deceived today that what Jesus said in the seven woes at the end of that uh, in Matthew 23, when he says, um, look, your house is left to you desolate. And remember the meaning of that word desolate is uh, a shepherd who has abandoned his flock, a, a husband who has withheld himself uh, from his wife. Your house has been left unto you desolate. Amen. Amen. <laughs>